Hello and welcome to this episode of Human Rights Magazine. My name is Derek McCush. The world's largest rainforest is in trouble. Trees are being cut down at the fastest rate in years for their wood and to clear the ground for crops supplying the global food industry. 75% of the forest is under stress with this level of deforestation and with climate change impacts, the trees take longer to recover from droughts and there are more fires. Much of the concern about the Amazon is about its important role in mitigating climate change. But there is a human rights dynamic as well. In this podcast, Stephanie Wang speaks with experts about those human rights concerns. Soy milk, beef, cosmetics, oil, and gold. What do they all have in common? Their raw materials can all be found within the Amazon rainforest. Who knew a forest could be so multifaceted? Using beef as an example, in 2020, Latin America accounts for a quarter of the world's beef production, and Brazil takes up almost 70% of this number, according to Beef Market Central. Meanwhile, half of Brazil's beef export goes to China, with another $45 million worth of beef ended up in the Middle East countries according to Dialogo Shino and the Observatory of Economic Complexity. But how are they related to human rights? Here's the answer. The place where cattle and soybeans grow, where oil and gold are extracted, are home to numerous local communities and indigenous people. The forest and land tenure there are under severe threat with their growing illegal extractions and industrial sector. Traditional ways of living are also challenged by the intrusion of the new mode of production. Astrid Melina Bruno is an associate for the Unsustainable Livestock Campaign at Global Force Coalition. She said, We need to clarify that it's not like the governmental initiatives are approaching this problem. It's a difficult reality <laughs> because Latin America is a high meat consumption region. Eating meat is part of the culture in different countries. Let's say in the case of Colombia, Argentina, Paraguay, Brazil, there is a strong culture associated to livestock production. So rural families, small farmers, they want to keep the animal production, but the industrialized system is far away from what is needed in the community. The production system is not in line with the traditional cultures, the traditional way to produce this, this meat. Andrea Echeverri is an expert in forest and biodiversity of Asociación Centro Nacional Salud, Ambiente y Trabajo, the Colombian branch of Friend of the Earth International. She told me, You get to see, well, when you take a plane in Colombia, when you take a boat in Colombia, when you take a bus in Colombia, what you get to see is small, it's nearly passed pastures and that they're really painful because you get to see that there was jungle there like five years ago you get to see a lot of forest fires right now um and that that's mainly caused by meat consumption by beef production uh in colombia that's also related to go to war a lot of criminal activities well like the paramilitary have been financed by by beef. More importantly, she noted that to understand that deforestation is a huge, a huge problem. It's a really complex uh, 
thing that doesn't only concern trees or doesn't only concern people. It's related to culture, it's related to social, ecological, uh, political issues. Resolving this crisis is by no means an easy job. It requires us to question many fundamentals of our society today. To get a better understanding of this great complexity, we'll break it down into different aspects. First, let's look at the supply chain. In our interview, Berno used a Colombian metaphor, a fish who bites its tail, to describe the vicious circle of industrial livestock production. If we start looking at the industry, what we found is that, in general, we are 8,000 million human beings that are consuming more than 68,000 million animals in one year, according to the United Nations. So the question is, what do we need to produce that amount of meat in one year? And what do we use to feed them? Where are those animals? Which are those resources that we are using to feed them and to keep these animals uh, alive? People don't use to ask about where is the, the food produced. So they don't know that many of these animals have been confined in industrial farms, in lands that were property of rural communities in Mexico, that basically many of those communities are being affected uh, because they don't have more possibility to access clean water, sustain their livelihoods. We, we need to go further and start asking what is happening in those, in those lands. So in the case of Mexico, for example, then this is a case that is currently happening there. The Mayan indigenous group, they have uh, they had to sue in the court a company for the construction of one of the big, big farms in order to be able to guarantee the, li the life of children in the region and to ask to, to be responsible for the, for the adequate use and, and, and animal production. So from my perspective, uh, yes, I think consumer decisions are crucial for the transformation of the sector, but consumers are not the only actors that are involved in this, in this industry. We need to go further and start thinking about where the food is being produced, what kind of food are we eating, who are the bigger consumers, where, what are those aspects that changes consumption patterns, and who are the real benefactors of the industrialized system. As we start to question, we will also need answers. But the reality is, the lack of a transparent tracking system and the monopoly of international corporations impede the disclosure of relevant information. But there is also a, a huge problem in, in terms of transparency because what is happening now in countries, uh, in some countries in Latin America, is that there are not formal registers of these small companies who are just producing animals to sell to the, the bigger companies. So basically, it's difficult to track who are the actors that are linked to one industry, specifically in the sector of industrial livestock. So in this case, one of the largest producers company that is called Keken, they, they basically lead the pork production in, in, in Mexico, but they are also part of a biggest group. The Kuo group, for example, it's a big conglomerate 
with businesses in the chemical and uh, automotive and food sector. And they have millions of dollars in, in annual sales that are depending on food production, on these industries. And consumers are not aware that these frozen foods that they are consuming were produced by the same company who basically have the, the industry production monopoly. Bernal points out the urgency of demanding transparency from the industry, which she believes would not only benefit social justice, but also the health system as a whole. Echeverry mentioned a similar case in Colombia. Actually, there's quite an interesting research that were, were also Opiac was involved, Colica was involved, and they specifically talk about the casino group, or like the French group, because they're buying meat from that area in the Amazon that's a sensitive area, that's a magical area, and well, they're buying meat that's coming from there. Um, so there's like sort of a boycott campaign going on to stop buying meat from the supermarkets where that meat is being sold. Besides the commodity-driven deforestation, my guests also have another major concern. Bernal also told me. There are a lot of deep problematics that are are, are beyond the, the livestock production and it's more related to the use of land. There are no an adequate approach about how we need to use the land. There is something that is not being discussed and it's really problematic in some ways because it could be political and it could be also in some way controversial because many people just want to continue living and growing the industrialized sector. Alejandra Zamora is the Peru facilitator of rice and resources and a consultant at the Center for International Forestry Research. In a written message to me, she said that the lack of legislation on land tenure hinders local communities and indigenous people to counteract the territorial and therefore the environmental pressures they face. In fact, the popularity of conservation has become another threat to land tenure nowadays. Everyone right now cares about the environment, the politicians, the states, uh, those big companies that are related to to oil extraction, to mining, they're also calling themselves uh, defenders of the environment. I think that right now there's like this global struggle to understand conservation. And I think that the policies must take into account these struggles. Um, well, we've acknowledged that in Colombia, the conservation is related to what we call uh, colonial conservation, because they still think that the human being is not a part of nature and they try to separate human beings from nature. People is being uh, displaced from their territories to actually keep those territories safe. And that's a mistake because sometimes the territories have been actually been taken care of by the people that inhabitates them. Those projects don't take into account people's life and people's means of life. Uh, and they don't get to live in the places they have inhabited for, for quite a while, for decades, for centuries even. Well, in Colombia, such as happened in the United States with the creation with, of the Yosemite and Yellowstone Park, 
In Colombia, also the creation of the first national park in the 50s, that is the Guachapas Natural Park, has caused the displacement of the indigenous people that was there. So they have brought peace and people, indigenous people, in areas that right now are considered strategical for conservation. But right now, government is treating them as criminals. They're saying, you must leave these areas. Well, and it's not saying it in a, in a good way. I mean, they're saying it with bombs. They're saying it with jail. They're telling them that they must leave from the territories that even the, the national government has located them into. Therefore, Achiberi suggested that. We must recognize those visions, those ways of, those traditional ways of being and in nature to understand that we're not enemies of nature, that we're allies, that we're part of nature. The tragedies caused by conservation are partial reflections of our problematic perception about the issue. But the discrepancy between our understanding and reality is far more than this. Well, actually in Colombia, there's also a strong link between deforestation and climate change. Since uh, the what is called the Apollo sector by the IPCC, that is um, land use changes, agriculture, cattle ranching, represent 59% of emissions in Colombia. So there's a strong link between those problems. So the struggles and the policies in Colombia tend to um, talk about those issues together. So there's been policies related to forest loss, to deforestation, but also to climate change. Those policies have been mostly related to false solutions, uh, such as riot project, carbon markets, um, etc., and also the militarization of conservation with um, special operation that has taken place since 2019 called um, Artemis, well, Artemis operation or Artemis operation. The main problems is that those policies have actually taken place, but they don't take into account the roots of the problem. There is a social injustice, land grabbing that is really, really strong in Colombia. Land grabbing is one of the main sources of political power in, uh, in Colombia. But those operations such as Artemisa and uh, RED and all those carbon market projects only attack on the most uh, weak um, pieces of the chain. Colombian government has mostly talked about the illegal causes of deforestation. They don't really talk about the economic model, the political model that is, well, the main cause of deforestation. When we talk about deforestation, there are two causes, direct causes and underlying causes in Colombia. And government, Colombian government always is talking about the, the direct causes, mostly related to illegal activities, but they don't they don't take into account that they promote mining in Colombia, they promote um, timber extraction, they promote mostly cattle ranching in um, essential areas for living, they promote also the agri-industry uh, related to palm oil. So indigenous organizations such as OPIAC, that is the organization of Amazon indigenous people in, in Colombia, have showed how this cattle ranching in strategical areas is affecting well their ways of life but also is causing deforestation in the colombian amazon we have a place called uh, the tdvkp park that is well 
uh, natural and cultural patrimony of Colombia because we have like this, well, it's an awesome place. I don't know if you know it, but you can check it out. It's one of the most magical places, I think, worldwide. It's actually the most ancient rock formation worldwide. And there's evidence of human peoples inhabiting this, this place from thousands and thousands of years ago. Uh, and well, the government has allowed that big farms, the cattle ranching farms, get installed inside this national park. External actors also plays a role in perpetuating the issue. The policies that many banks, you know, like many international financial institutions also try to promote those industrialized models of production. So um, it's kind of the architecture of the sector. It is not that different parties haven't made efforts to attend to the matter. For instance, the European Union issued their timber regulations and mandatory due diligence requirement proposal in the past decade. However, problems still exist. They show the interest to, to provide a better governance and trade system, but you know there are there are points that are still missing in these regulations. So. Of course, there is, and we notice there is a gender gap in these policies. For example, the regulations that are are have been proposed are gender blind, and and it's not clear how the participatory and the rights based approach is included. the The main problem is that forests and ecosystems are still being part of, of what they consider a, an environmental issue that is far from social and cultural aspects in the in the in the countries. So of course the, the problem is that forests are are continue seen as a commercial good, you know, as part of the solution to um, fight against climate change, to keep the forest uh, to use them as carbon sinks, but but the basically the people is not considered there. There are no there are not clear um, regulations, or at least we have not clarity about what will be the consultative process to involve smallholders, and the regulation basically do not approach an assessment regarding the communities that will be the most affected by these policies. Uh, the, the, the impact on gender could be huge because women have really important roles in the governance and forest management. They are basically who feed the families, who keep the communities um, well fed. So, so it's, it's important to highlight that. And it's missing in the, in the European Union regulations and initiatives. Demola told me there are similar problems with how climate funds can exclude local communities. She said international climate funds have carried out series of plans and projects without including them in the first place. Climate funds goes to governments or NGOs and little actually goes to concrete actions that will last over time. Everyone I spoke with stresses the need to strengthen related legislation. Berno suggested that 
basically part of the solution is to ensure that the regulations and the policies have a human rights and participatory based approach. Due diligence requirements for the financial sector can be also expressed and clear in the regulations. Another crucial aspect is to fix the loopholes. Many, many uh, academics and communities have asked to the European Union to ensure that that other commodities uh, can be also included there. So what they are trying to avoid is that, for example, if people cannot produce or trade timber, maybe they will just want to, you know, just switch to another sector that cannot be regulated. So let's say in in case of mining, mining is an activity that is not regulated, that is not being considered in those regulations. And probably the people who live from timber exports will will find easy to just work in another sector. Globalization makes it impossible for modern societies to collapse in isolation, as did Easter Island and the Greenland North in the past. Any society in turmoil today, no matter how remote, can cause trouble for prosperous societies on other continents and is also subject to their influence, whether helpful or destabilizing. For the first time in history, we face the risk of a global decline, but we also are the first to enjoy the opportunity of learning quickly from developments in societies anywhere else in the world today and from what has unfolded in societies at any time in the past. This is what Jared Diamond said in his book, Collapse, How Society Chose to Fail or Succeed. Indeed, the history shows us that any civilization that does not take adaptive approaches to environmental challenges collapsed, which points to the importance of change. We've made a lot of mistakes, and the planet is showing us in a bad way that we must change our way and that we must recover that those things that have worked and those things will probably are not those false solutions such as car as carbon market as technology solution like um, geoengineering and all those solutions that are allegedly creative things but actually don't question the way in which we are living in this planet right now, a way that has proven wrong, that has proven unsustainable. I mean, we have a worldwide consumption that is based on oil extraction, and oil extraction is not earth-friendly, it's not people-friendly. So we must go back to local consumption, and we must, and that's a must for the planet, we must reduce our meat consumption. We're running out of time. And we can't keep having like these distractions from the global crisis. I've been in some crisis right now. And we've been in crisis for quite a while because I think that the capitalist system is, well, the crisis itself. But we haven't had a crisis that is actually threatening the basis of life, an ecological crisis like this one before. So I think that we have to change. Well, it's not an option. And right now, even when it seems easier to think the end of the world rather than the end of capitalism, I'm kind of hopeful because I think that we realize that we're 
we have as civilization, as a, as a capital civilization, we failed. And we must, we must refocus. We must think what's important, that is the way of keeping life. Or we can't keep thinking that we will grow infinitely in a world that's finite, that's limited. People suffering, major suffering, and the planet can't stand it anymore. People can't stand it anymore. So let's start listening to those alternatives that have been forgotten as a hope, really, to change all the mistakes that we have made as a capitalist civilization to really set things right. However, identifying the root causes is never the hardest part. Challenging the existing framework that privileges corporations remains the biggest obstacle. Ashibeti remains critical to the existing trade agreements and initiatives proposed by governments. To be honest, I'm skeptical about the way the COP26 and everything um, is going on because it's putting profit over people, over the planet itself. But I'm positive about the response that people and the social movements worldwide uh, um the organizations worldwide, the academy even, is reclaiming the rights for, for nature. More and more people are saying that another world is possible and that the world is not a world thing uh, designed for the big companies. Well, those big corporations have a lot of power and they have taken over the states as well. And I think right now, uh, free trade agreements are more important than human rights agreements. And... We can't have um, like climate justice, justice for forests itself, not only for its value for people, if we don't have social justice. And social justice must include well, the abuses caused by big corporations. So I think the, the global architecture that has been designed to privilege those big companies and those big polluters must be changed to put people in the center, to put life in the center. And we must do it fast. I don't know if you got to see the last report of the IPCC related to the Amazon. And it says that we only have like 10 years to revert the tendencies of the Amazon or we're going to lose it. And I think that if we lose the Amazon, we're going to lose the possibility to have a future of life as we know it. Mm, so the Amazon for me represents hope. And in that way, we must keep out business of conservation. We must keep out profit of human rights. And the Amazon is a great opportunity, well, to win that struggle about the disputes over conservation, the disputes over human rights. Uh, so we're gonna regain the Amazon for people. We're gonna regain the Amazon for life. We're gonna regain the Amazon for Amazon itself, for its rivers, for its trees, for its magic, for its jungle. Thank you for listening to this episode of Human Rights Magazine. The podcast is brought to you by the Upstream Journal. I invite you to consider supporting the program and the magazine with a contribution through PayPal as you explore other episodes.